0: you musical team for leading us in that this morning. It's greatly appreciated. I'd like us to begin this morning in Paul's letter to the Philippians, chapter three. Philippians chapter three. Thank you. And if you're using one of our Bibles here, it's on page twelve forty nine. Oh no. That's not the sermon. There it is. Okay. Never fear. There we go. Okay. This is going to kind of be, I'm just going to read some verses here in Philippians chapter three and I'll explain where I'm going, but this is not necessarily a text where we're going to be in one passage and and explaining that. That's what I do about 99% of the time here when I'm speaking. Just choose a passage or as we're walking through Romans as an example, I'll choose one passage and go through that. This is uh, more of a topical sermon, and of course, in honor and celebration of Easter and uh, thinking about the resurrection of Christ, of course, and putting that uh, forward to us. But this year, I don't want to emphasize necessarily the past resurrection account. Um, that would be what we read in, in Luke's gospel, as an example. You have those resurrection accounts in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, uh, written for us and laid out from different perspectives and we're thinking of it in historical terms and sometimes I'll even talk about the resurrection and evidence for it, why we believe that this really happened and there, there is evidence for the resurrection uh, contrary to what you might have been told, things like that. But what I want to focus on now is the fact that, that not just that Jesus rose from the dead but that he's alive right now. And that is really important to understand and so I'm going to draw out some aspects of that, you know, what what Jesus is like now and what Jesus is doing. I don't have I could fill up a whole series with this, but there's just a few I'd like to bring out. But we have to understand that Christianity is not just about facts, whether they be historical or facts about God or facts about Jesus. The, it is about those facts, and we have to have those facts of Christ's death and resurrection to have true Christianity. But then it becomes about a relationship with the living Christ or with the triune God through the living Christ. And there's a big difference in that because you can know about Jesus and not know him at all. You can know a lot about him and not know him. And what the Bible presents to us is that you can know the living Christ. You can have fellowship with him and communion with him. And know him by faith. And so that's kind of what I'm emphasizing for us this morning. I thought I would begin with reading Philippians chapter 3 in verse 7. Remember, Paul was, is writing this and he was opposed to Jesus. He, he rejected Jesus until he had that encounter with the risen Christ, right? On the Damascus Road. And he says this, Indeed, I count that I may know Him and the power of His resurrection and may share His sufferings, becoming like Him in His death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Let's just pause and ask God's blessing on His word this morning. Father, we know it is Your desire to glorify Your Son And we pray that you would do that among us this morning as we prayed earlier that you'd warm our affections for him. For those who don't know him that they would come to know him. That in every way this would be filled with gospel power this morning. I pray God especially I just ask that you'd help me. Um, I need your grace and power through the spirit to to teach and preach and, and to do so in a way that is understandable and edifying, helpful. Even in my demeanor and disposition, I pray for it, that your spirit would guide me in every way and guide everyone here to be able to look to Jesus Christ. And we ask this in his name, amen. So I just have a few points that I'll draw out for us about the living Jesus Christ, okay, as we're just gonna contemplate what the Bible teaches about him and I'm hoping that will be helpful for us as Christians and anyone in here who is not, uh, that's, uh, you're welcome and I just hope that you will see what we see. That's my prayer. Jesus is still a human being who is in the presence of God interceding for and helping his people. What is Jesus like now? Where is Jesus now? Well, Jesus is still a human being who is in the presence of God in heaven and is both interceding and helping his people. It's kind of the first heading. Let me just unpack that a little bit, okay? What we see in the gospel accounts, even in the one we read this morning from Luke 24, right, is that when Jesus died, he died as a human being. When he rose again, he rose as a human being in bodily form. They went to the tomb. Guess what? The body wasn't there. Why? Because he was alive. When he presented himself to his disciples, he said, here, look at my hands and my feet. Touch them. You can see. You see the scars in them? I'm a human being. And when they're still disbelieving, am I seeing a spirit here? What's going on? What do you say? Hey, does anybody have any fish to eat? Let's have a meal together. Let me show you that... I am, I am Jesus still. I am human being in human flesh. At Christmas time, of course, we celebrate what we call the incarnation. That is that the eternal Son of God was sent forth by the Father, born of the Virgin Mary as a human being, and then lived a human life for roughly 33 years until they hung him on a cross, that he was human in every way. He was tempted and tried. He got tired and he slept. Uh, he was hungry and he ate. He experienced humanity as we do in all its fullness. Life in a fallen world. The only exception being he never sinned. But he experienced humanity among other humans. And what we celebrate at Easter, at the resurrection, is that that assignment for the Son of God to become a man, to save us from our sins, is a permanent assignment. The eternal son of God who created the world took on human flesh and he remains in it right now. And friends, let this fact sink in. That will always be the case. Jesus is still a human being. You know, John and John's gospel, John chapter 20, verses 19 to 20, and not, I'll put most of these on the screen or you can turn to them if you'd like, but it says this, that on the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. And when he said this, he showed them his hands and his sides. Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord It was the same Jesus, and he was alive, just as he said. In 1 Timothy 2, verse 5, Paul says this, There is one God, and there is one mediator between God and men, the man, Christ Jesus. See, what it required to save human beings from their sins was a human being. A perfect human being who could perfectly atone for sins on the cross and be raised again for them and now he's the mediator between God and men. The only mediator. As a matter of fact, what he's saying is the only way a person can be saved from their sins and have a right relationship to God is through this one man. No other man. No other prophet. No other ruler. No one else. Even if they're offering salvation cannot Give it. There is one mediator between God and men. It's the man Christ Jesus who is still a man, still a human being. Jesus is still a human being, but here's some really good news, especially if you're a human being, which I think most of us here qualify, and you are in this fallen body, this really decaying body, the body subject to disease and pain and eventually death, the good news is he's a human being, but he's a glorified human being now. And the gospel says that not only will we be raised like Christ from the dead, but friends, that our bodies will be made like Christ's glorious body. And that means that when that time happens, we're never going to experience those things again. You know, the, the, um, the vision of, a, of the glorified Savior is quite a sight. The Apostle John got to see into heaven and he got to interact with the risen Christ. And that account in Revelation chapter 1, verse 17 to 18 says this, "...when I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead." But he laid his right hand on me, saying, fear not, I am the first and the last and the living one. I died and behold, I am alive forevermore and I have the keys of death and Hades. I don't have this verse, but in John 17, Jesus prays and he says, Father, glorify me now with the glory that I shared with you before the world existed. The glory of the incarnate Son of God now in heaven is quite a sight, so much so that even when one of his disciples encounters him, they collapse. They fall to the ground as a dead man. What does that mean? Like Their whole body gave out. It's such a powerful sight to behold the glorified Christ. But what the gospel says is that all those who put their trust in him will become like him what a marvelous truth. We too will be glorified. As a matter of fact, John says this in 1 John chapter 3, verse 2. Beloved, we are God's children now. That's true. And what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, what? We shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. That's the hope of the resurrected Christ for his people, that we're going to be glorified like Christ. Matter of fact, Paul says this in Philippians 3, verses 20 to 21. Our citizenship is in heaven. From it, we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body. And that's really important, friends, as you're walking through a life right now that entails suffering. Suffering that is unique to fallen human beings. We have people in this room suffering. We have people, a part of our congregation, who are suffering with physical ailments. Some of them now have cancer again. It seems like that, that's a, a, a common theme among our church, as it is all over the place. We have people who, because we are in these fallen bodies, they are subject to disease, and they're subject to death. Paul says this in verse 18, though, of uh, Romans 8. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now, and not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. What's he trying to say? He's trying to say this. As we are human beings now, in fallen bodies, living lives here, we're groaning inwardly by the, the suffering that is caused. That suffering you experience, you You groan about it. And what is that groaning? It's a longing to be free from it. And what is that longing to be free? What does Paul say? When we are glorified with Christ. That's what we're going towards. We're going towards that time in which he will make us like him. And we will be in absolute perfection forever. He's glorified in heaven. And so too will you be. That's an important part of the gospel. I want to, actually, I'm going to have you turn to this one. Look at 1 Corinthians 15. And if you are in our Bibles again, you can find that on page uh, 1222, and 1223 specifically is where we'll be reading. 1 Corinthians 15, verse Forty-two. Now, as you're turning there, let me catch you up where Paul is in 1 Corinthians 15. He talked about the, the nature of the gospel. He says, here is the, of first importance, the gospel boiled down is this, that Christ died for our sins, made atonement for us, that he was buried, and that he rose again the third day, and then he was seen by a whole bunch of people who bear witness to it. Matter of fact, at one occasion, over 500 people, Paul says, saw the living, resurrected Jesus and could bear testimony to it. But then he addresses some people in the congregation or some teachers attached to the congregation that were saying that, you "Well, know, Jesus may have risen from the dead, but we don't rise from the dead. Maybe they believe that when you died, you know, your body just remains and your spirit goes on and you just become kind, some kind of spiritual, you know, being out there. And Paul says that's not the gospel. The gospel is that Christ rose from the dead and then we rise from the dead and it goes a step further than that. Just as Jesus received his new body, so too will we, right? So he says this in verse 42 of chapter 15. He says, so it is with the resurrection of the dead. What is sown is perishable. What is raised is imperishable. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. Verse 52, in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable and we shall be changed. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable and this mortal body must put on immortality. And when the perishable puts on the imperishable and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory, you see. Those two words, perishable, imperishable, and uh, immortal, those are very important. When something is perishable, the idea is it's subject to decay. It can get sick. It can deteriorate, and it does. But the new body will not be able to do that, you see. It's going to be imperishable body. It's going to be immortal, literally, without dying, without the possibility of death. Death will never play a factor and in the kingdom you will never say goodbye to someone you loved and yet lost it'll never happen and you yourself will never have to face physical death again all because of the Lord Jesus Christ who defeated death in the cross and in the resurrection and is now glorified and you too one day will be with him I know that many of you are suffering in your bodies now We're helping those who are walking through great suffering. But I think when we experience glorification, we need to understand that that will never happen again. Jesus is right now glorified and we will be like him. And I think, friends, then we will know what it is to truly live life to all its fullness as a human being. We will experience the fullness of human life free from the frailty of our perishable and mortal bodies. So that is one part of the good news. As Christ is glorified, we will be glorified with him. But understand this now. Uh, The resurrected Jesus is in heaven right now interceding for you if you're a Christian. You need to know what that means. It's really important. And in order to understand what he's meaning by by, by what I mean by he intercedes for us, I'll use Romans 8 verses 33 and 34 where Paul says this, who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died and more than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. In other words, what Paul is saying here is this, what is Jesus doing right now for his people? Well, he's at the right hand of God and he's interceding for him. meaning this, that no one can bring a charge of sin against you that would bring condemnation. You can never be condemned. He's not saying that somebody couldn't say that you sinned. That's just the facts that we sin as God's people all the time. But there's no condemning charge. There's no sin someone in Christ could commit that could be brought to the Father and and to say to God, look what he or she has done now. You must now do away with them because of what they've done. They must be condemned. Look Look at what they have done. Paul's saying that's not possible because your salvation and mine isn't resting in what we do or don't do. It's in the resurrected Jesus Christ, who's at the right hand of the Father, interceding for you right now. He is your salvation. Your salvation is wrapped up in him, you see, Christian. So the only way that you could lose this wonderful thing you've received is if Jesus were to die or leave heaven. And we know that's not going to happen. So as long as he's at the right hand of the Father, he's interceding for you so that when God looks at you, he sees the righteousness of his Son. His perfection, His obedience, His sacrifice on the cross, His life. He's interceding for you. Hebrews 7 verse 25, Consequently, He is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through Him, since He always lives to make intercession for them. Meaning if you come to Christ for salvation, He always lives to intercede for you. And in that way, he's able to save you all the way through. He's able to finish, as Paul said, what he began, that good work he began in you. Your salvation is secure in Christ, who is at the right hand of the Father, interceding for you. This is why we call Jesus our great high priest. What's a priest? One who intercedes between God and men. Remember, that was the established priesthood in the Old Testament. And they had a high priest. And every year the high priest would go in on Day of Atonement, the only one who could do it once a year, into the Holy of Holies. The sacrifice was made for the sins of God's people. But now we have a far greater high priest. One who never needs to be replaced like those because they got old and they died. One who is always living, always interceding in the holiest of holies for you all the time. If you're discouraged in your Christian walk or how it's going... And get your eyes off yourself and get them onto Jesus. He is your salvation. This is why we sing. Before the throne of God above, I have a strong and perfect plea, a great high priest whose name is love, who ever lives and pleads for me. When Satan tempts me to despair and tells me of the guilt within, upward I look and see him there who made an end to all my sin. Because the sinless Savior died, my sinful soul is counted free. For God the just is satisfied to look on him and pardon me. Behold him there, the risen lamb, my perfect spotless righteousness, the great unchangeable I am, the king of glory and of grace. One with himself I cannot die. My soul is purchased by his blood. My life is hid with Christ on high, with Christ my Savior and my God. Jesus is your salvation, friends. That's why we keep our eyes of faith on him and not on ourselves. But the resurrected Jesus is not only interceding for his people, but he is helping his people. Jesus loves to help his people. Jesus loves to help his suffering people. It is his joy and delight to help his people when they come to him for help. He loves to do this. Hebrews chapter 2 verses 17 to 18 says this, Therefore he, that is Jesus, had to be made like his brothers in every respect. In other words, he had to become a human being so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people, that is, take care of our sins on the cross by paying the penalty for them and absorbing God's wrath for them. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, now he is able to help those who are being tempted. you see how important it is that he's still a human being? Because now as a human being, he's able to help you, knowing what it's like to live as a human being in a fallen world. He knows what it's like to be tempted. So he is, there to, he, he is there to help his people when they are tempted. He can be sympathetic about this. Be faithful to us in this way. If you're tempted, then look to Jesus for help. Hebrews chapter 4, verses 14 to 16. Since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of, uh, Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Do you ever find yourself in situations in life where you're in a time of need? You need help. To whom do you turn first? Friends? Family? You should turn first to the Lord Jesus Christ who knows exactly what you're going through and loves to help his people. Delights in it. You know, sometimes when we need help, we don't like to ask other people for help because we're like, man, I I know this person's busy and I don't want to bother him or her. You know, you kind of feel that. You never feel that with Jesus. Jesus is is God who is infinite in his being and is able to help perfectly all of his children at all times. I want to give you a biblical example of what that help looks like so that next time you need it, you know what it looks like, okay? And there's a biblical example for this, and it's in Second Corinthians chapter 12. I'm not sure, do I have uh, verses for that? Yes. Let me give you the context here first. In Second Corinthians chapter 12, Paul is talking about, um, he's defending his ministry to those who didn't believe that he should be an apostle. And he has to tell them about all these things that have happened to him. And he gives an experience that he had where he got to go into what they call paradise, or the third heaven, right? I believe it's the presence of God. And Paul doesn't know if this was just a vision he had. He admits that in chapter 12. He doesn't know if, it's a, if he was transported there in body, but he gets in. He gets to see things that he can't tell you about. I guess God likes surprises and he's going to, you got to wait to see some of the things and hear some of the things that Paul saw and heard. But then he said, to keep me from being conceited because of the surpassing greatness of the revelation, okay? In other words, God did something for me to keep me from becoming proud because Paul was a sinner and he could be tempted to be proud. If you were seeing all these things and hearing directly from God all the time and you had all this authority in that early church, you might be tempted to be proud, right? Uh, power can corrupt and, uh, and uh, great knowledge can puff up. Paul talks about this. So the fact is he did something for Paul to keep him from being conceited. He says a thorn was given me in the flesh. This is all verse 7. A messenger of Satan to me to keep me from becoming conceited. Nobody knows what this was, but they believe it was some kind of physical infirmity. Could it have been something to do chronically with his eyes? Some kind of painful experience that kept Paul from doing the things he wanted to do in the way he wanted to do them. He just, he hated this thing. He wanted it gone. This infirmity that he had, he wanted it gone. It made him feel weak. And in verse 8, here we are, verse 8, he says, three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. Now let me show you this. He did the right thing. He went to the resurrected living Christ for help. I need help with this. And here's what I think you should do, Lord. You ever do that? I think you should just take this away from me, and I wouldn't be experiencing it anymore anymore. And then the problem would be solved and we could move on. Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this that it should leave me. But listen to what Jesus said. He said to me, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. In other words, Paul, I know you're suffering in this, and I know it makes you feel weak because you are weak. And the wonderful thing about that, Paul, is that when you're weak, you turn to me. And what do I do? I supply you with the strength that you need, my strength, which is far greater than your strength. You see, what Jesus wants us to do is to rely on the living Christ. That's a relationship, isn't it? I'm relying upon you now Lord Jesus, to give me the strength I need to endure this. My strength, my grace is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in weakness. Paul's like, oh, is that what this is about? Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with these weaknesses insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. He settles in with it. He's actually embracing the suffering as this great, gracious means of God to get him not to trust in himself, but to trust in Jesus. Not to rely on his own strength and power, but to go to the resurrected Christ For the strength and power to live and serve and worship to carry on in spite of it. He says and he concludes, for when I am weak, then I am strong. In your suffering, do you feel weak? Then you're in a good place. And it's a gracious Lord, isn't it, who would bring us to that place where we feel the weakness to the extent that we're pleading with whatever it is to be removed and Jesus says, no, I know what's best for you. You look to me now for the help you need through it. See, in our minds, we're always thinking that the way Jesus could help us is if he removed the trial The way Jesus could help us is if he just made us better. That would be help to us. And sometimes he does that. There are times for his own purposes, he heals. He relieves. But there are other times for our good, he leaves us in it so that we're trusting in the risen Christ. You know, friends, sometimes I think our prayer lives, our real fellowship with Jesus amp up in times of suffering. When things are calm and peaceful, we lose our sense of dependence on him. Well, didn't I say that true Christianity is about relationship with Christ? Isn't that what Paul said? It's so that I can know him and know the power of his resurrection? Well, how can we know him and the power of his resurrection apart from suffering? We can't. We can know a lot about Him. But we gain knowledge of Him, a relational knowledge and experience like Paul does when he brings us through hard times. The risen Jesus loves to help His people, but it isn't always what we think it should look like. It comes often in the form of Him allowing us to suffer, but then helping us through it all. My grace is sufficient for you. I'm gonna leave us with this last point. The risen and glorified Jesus, if you're a Christian, if you believe in Jesus, he lives within you. Everything I've said, I've talked about the risen, ascended Christ at the right hand of the Father interceding for us, helping us from there. But make no mistake, Jesus is intimately connected with you. The living Christ through his spirit lives in you. Which means he's with you every day, all day. He said this in John chapter 14, right before he went to the cross, he told his disciples, I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. Yet a little while and the world will see me no more, but you will see me. Because I live, you also will live. In that day, you will know that I am in my Father and you and me, and I in you. Have you ever pondered that in your relationship to Christ? Not some distant historical figure, not some distant far-off figure, but the living Christ dwelling within his people, living within you. What a marvelous thing to think about I grew up singing a song, and I'm not going to sing it for you, but I'm going to read two lines of it. Maybe some of you will recognize this song. I serve a risen Savior. He's in the world today. I know that He is living, whatever men may say. I see His hand of mercy, and I hear His voice of cheer. And just the time I need Him, He's always near. He lives, He lives. Christ Jesus lives today. He walks with me and talks with me along life's narrow way. He lives, He lives, salvation to impart. You ask me how I know He lives? He lives what? Within my heart. Friends, that's biblical. That's Jesus. You will know in that day that I am in my Father and you are in me and I am in you. This is how he could tell his disciples, behold, I am with you all the days even until the end of the age. Does the living Christ live in you? If you're a believer this morning, do you live every day as though he is in you and with you? Do you fellowship with Jesus through his word and through his people and through worship? Does he speak to you through his word and Lead you in your life? Do you speak to him as a living person? If you are not a believer, did you know that Jesus will come and live with you as well? Matter of fact, in Revelation chapter 3, this is interesting because Jesus, after he had died, and rose again, went to heaven, he wrote through John seven letters to churches. And um, they were the churches that existed then, and he had some things to say to each one. And the last one he talked about was a real problem church. They were lukewarm. They thought they were okay, but they they just were apathetic, I think, to Christ and to Jesus and to fellowship with him and to communion with him. And and he says this to them right in the middle of this. In chapter 3, verse 20, he says, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. I think in the imagery here it's really kind of a comical thing. He's standing at the door of his church. They won't let him in. He's knocking. Can I come in, please, since I'm like Jesus and stuff? And But then he says this if anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. That's quite a promise, isn't it? That's a personal promise. He's writing the whole church, and then he hones in. Now, if anyone in there hears this, you open the door to me, and I will come in. It's an offer of fellowship with the living Christ, intimate, personal communion with him. I will come into you by faith, through my spirit, and live in you, dwell with you, we'll fellowship together. You will know me and walk with me and hear from me. That's what I think Christianity is supposed to look like. A bunch of people who know what it is to have the indwelling Christ living within them. Fellowshiping with him and then he flowing out from them to others. Let that be the pursuit of our heart this Easter, to know the risen Christ. Friends, if you do not know him, that invitation is to you. If you hear his voice, to believe in him, you can do it this morning, right now. No, nothing needs to happen outwardly, just in your heart and mind, you can say, Jesus, I believe what the Bible says about you save me from my sins, and he will do just that. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for these gospel truths, and I pray that each one of them would be impressed upon our hearts, not just for knowledge, but for relationship with Christ. And I pray that we would leave here realizing that he lives within us. Those who do not know you, Jesus, we pray for their salvation. We lift them up to you. In your name, amen.